0: Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Matt Katz, sitting in for Brooke Ladstone. This week, President Joe Biden decried the Russian military attacks on civilians. Putin
2: is inflicting appalling, appalling devastation and horror on Ukraine. Bombing apartment buildings, maternity wards, hospitals. Oh,
1: I, I think he is a war criminal. In case you missed it, he called Putin a war criminal. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about Biden's choice of words later that day.
3: The president's remarks speak for themselves. Uh, He was speaking from his heart and speaking from what he's seen on television, which is
2: barbaric actions by a brutal dictator uh, through his invasion of a foreign country.
1: What we see on TV or social media might be enough proof to condemn Putin in the court of public opinion, but the international courts that investigate human rights violations and crimes against humanity, of course, they have a much higher bar. For the past decade, open-source researchers have used online posts, Google Street View, radio chatter, and publicly available satellite imagery to piece together comprehensive overviews of war zones. But what's new with this conflict in Ukraine is that the information gathering is being tailored to meet the standards needed to bring war crime cases to trial. Organizations like the Netherlands-based nonprofit Bellingcat, which was founded in 2014 by Elliot Higgins, tap into a network of digital-savvy users to get real-time, impossibly intricate details about how this war is being waged. Like documenting the use of the cluster bomb. In 2008, more than 100 states ratified a treaty condemning their use, but Russia was not among them. Higgins explains how they
3: identified these weapons in the field. So in the case of cluster munition attacks, one thing that's rather unique about them is when the munition opens up in the air, there's two parts, a rocket engine and a cluster munition container that lands in the ground, kind of like lawn darts. And you can actually use the direction that the munition is pointing back towards to get a line of where the rocket came from in the first place follow that line back and find multiple instances is in one location of cluster munition use. And you can plot this on Google Earth, the trajectories of these weapons, and we look at where these trajectories cross. We also have access to satellite imagery through providers like Planet, Maxar, and we can look at those areas and see if there's signs of any military activity. And if there's multiple rocket launchers there, then you can often see burn marks on the ground from launch plumes that give you a sense of which direction they're firing at. We also then have some other interesting stuff coming from Ukraine. For example, Russia is having issues with their encrypted communications, so they're forced to use unencrypted radios, and those signals are being picked up and actually streamed online. We can actually connect those launch sites to specific radio frequencies and start connecting orders to give launches to the actual impacts and the launches themselves. We also have from before the conflicts, local Russians were using TikTok to film military convoys. And a lot of those videos have been collected, and that allows us to track the movements of Russian convoys, including those containing missile launchers, and establish which military base they originated from so we can have the specific unit that was involved with these attacks. And when we're dealing with cluster munitions attacks, they're often in civilian areas, so potentially these could be violations of international humanitarian law. You mentioned Russian
1: radio frequencies and how you've been able to intercept those and listen to those. Who is
3: monitoring those channels? I mean, with that and many other things that's happening with the conflict in Ukraine, this organic ad hoc online community that's formed around the conflict. Now, back in 2014, after the downing of Malaysian Airlines 17 in eastern Ukraine, a lot of people came together on the internet in this same kind of way and dug through the evidence of that. That then led us to make more discoveries about Russia's involvement in Ukraine back in 2014, including things like cross-border artillery attacks, which we use satellite imagery to look for. In particular, the work of the conflict intelligence team and the Center for Information Resilience gave us forewarning that an invasion was coming. And why is it important that that information
1: gets collected and then disseminated so quickly?
3: Well, part of it is to have an understanding of how the conflict is unfolding and the ebb and flow of combat activity. We certainly have a very good sense of Russia's activities where they've been the quite significant vehicle losses that have been documented through open sources. It also means that when we're working towards accountability, all of this is evidence that can help in legal cases at places like the International Criminal Court. And it's a very simple thing to geolocate a video and say what munition was used in it, but As a conflict unfolds, there's thousands, if not millions of videos like this start being produced. In the conflict in Syria, for example, there's an archive of a few million videos and photographs that have come from that conflict. And the problem is, if you aren't adding useful metadata that makes it searchable from day one, you basically have a mass of unsearchable data that could be very useful, but it's impossible for anyone to really search you in a reasonable way. So our first step in our process is making sure that useful information is available as soon as possible to future accountability Processes. So the International Criminal Court said it would
1: investigate war crimes in Ukraine. The United Nations Human Rights Council will create a commission of inquiry on Ukraine. German federal prosecutors began a probe as well. All of these entities are seeking evidence for possible war crimes. What are the potential implications of what you're doing when it comes to seeking justice for atrocities committed in this war? What could this mean when it comes to holding people accountable for what's going on right now?
3: So part of the work that we're doing is we have this justice and accountability team that's purely focused on producing reports that are basically to a quality and a standard that means they're submissible to places like the ICC and these other mechanisms that are being set up. The idea is that is that it's not to replace their investigation, but to supplement the work that they would be doing through more traditional investigative methods. So, you know, talking to witnesses and different kinds of experts. And Bellingcat's in quite a unique position in that we are... I think pretty much at the cutting edge of this kind of investigation, which is quite a lot of pressure for a small organisation. But the past few years, we've been focused a lot on developing our ideas around that and working with legal experts to develop a process for archiving and investigation that meets the requirements of these kind of bodies. I mean, I started doing this basically as a hobby 10 years ago. And now, you know, we're talking to bodies who are really keen on using this kind of stuff as evidence. We've professionalised basically the entire field. And now what we're trying to do is make the bad guys basically aware that if you commit a crime, there's a way for that to be documented, a way that's out of your control, and a way that's undeniable. I think this is the first time I've seen a conflict in the 10 years I've been doing this, where everyone in all these communities has been prepared for it. And it makes me very hopeful for the future, because this isn't just about what happens in Ukraine. It's almost about using Ukraine as the example of what's possible when we all come together and work together. Elliot, thank you so
1: much. Thanks for having me on. Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat and author of the book, We Are Bellingcat, an intelligence agency for the people. As we just heard, even a meticulously organized database of evidence is no good if a judge won't look at it, which is how the Berkeley Protocol on Digital Open Source Investigations came to be. Alexa Koenig is the executive director of the Human Rights Center at the UC Berkeley School of Law. She says the protocol was developed in response to a real need for guidelines on the use of online information to support justice and accountability.
2: One of the things we began to notice was that there wasn't a lot of clear answers about the admissibility of this new kind of content in international criminal courts or tribunals that were being set up for war crimes. So we began to think through what kind of a foundation needed to be laid to ensure that we were all even first speaking the same language. We held a workshop in 2017 in Italy that brought together members of the Office of the Prosecutor at the ICC with technologists, with journalists who were pioneering a lot of the underlying methodology. What we quickly found was that we were all lost and all trying to build this new world together. Little things like if you grab a bunch of videos from YouTube or a bunch of posts from Twitter, how do you tag and code those so that later when war crimes investigators come looking for what evidence exists, you even know what you have and can find that signal in the noise.
1: If I'm in Ukraine right now and I'm looking to document some of the atrocities that are happening, what will I read in there to better understand how to Do this kind of work?
2: So, some of the things that you can find in the Berkeley Protocol are first, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction across the world, there might be different requirements about how you introduce this kind of information into the court system, its potential admissibility, what the judges are going to want to see to help establish its authenticity. Also, beyond the law, thinking about when you grab something, say, a video from YouTube or a photograph from Twitter, what you capture and how you capture it can really matter. So one of the things that we recommend in the protocol is that you're downloading not only the video or the photograph itself. That you First of all, you don't just take a screen grab, which I think was really the standard even five or six years ago. Today, that's increasingly not being seen as strong as if you download the actual item and that you do so capturing all of the surrounding contextual information. Information, like the comments that are made, etc. And then ideally, you're having some process for what's called hashing that digital item. So a hash for anyone who's not already familiar with that term is just an alphanumeric code that is unique to every kind of digital asset, so a video or a photograph. This helps to establish chain of custody with these digital items so that later when the item is introduced as evidence in court, you can run a software program across the item and see if the alphanumeric code has changed. If it has not changed, that's fairly decent evidence that the item has not been manipulated since it's been in the investigator's custody. Finally, we also raise a lot of issues around ethics and also around psychosocial well-being and resiliency. I think something that's very new to this community of practice is we've never before had a time in history where people were so bombarded with really graphic content So, we want investigators to be able to start thinking about how to protect themselves, their teams, and that they are also thinking about the publics that might come across it. Because the stuff can be quite upsetting.
1: You know, scrolling through my my Twitter feed today, I saw a pretty gruesome image of of a bloodied baby, apparently from Ukraine. I immediately looked away, but I'm sure I will see many more images in the coming days and weeks that I don't necessarily want to see. And so I was just wondering how how you deal with gruesome images. Is grappling with that discomfort just part of seeking justice? Or do you have some advice on, on how all of us can deal with these images that we're kind of bombarded with?
2: Yeah, I'm actually writing a book right now on that with a colleague, and I don't think we realized how timely this would be with Ukraine. One of the things in interviewing people all over the world who deal with this kind of graphic content, one of the big insights has been know when you don't need to look. So I think it's very tempting to feel like we have an obligation to witness the worst of war because we know how desperately people are suffering. But if we are getting that information in other ways and we don't need to know or don't have a reason to look, sometimes it's actually better for our long-term well-being to not look
1: but sometimes we don't have a choice right sometimes we don't i mean it's just showing up on my scroll i got the latest news from spring training with the mets and then the Mm -hmm. next image is is something that i can't get out of my head
2: Great point. So I think one of the first things we recommend for all people doing this work and for the lay public as well is turn off autoplay on Twitter, on Facebook, on any platform you can. So things aren't just popping up and surprising you. One of the things psychologists have found is most damaging about this is the element of surprise. So if you are going to watch it, Some ways to potentially help yourself process the material and not hopefully leave an indelible mark is to pre-screen and have some sense of what you're going to watch. What I will do as an investigator is if I see a video on YouTube and I suspect it's going to be particularly graphic, I'll actually scroll through the thumbnails first to let myself know, am I going to see a beheading or some kind of targeted assassination? And then I will deliberately turn down the sound. One of the things that is well known by open source investigators is a lot of the emotive quality of this content is in the person pleading for their life or the baby screaming for its mother, if you can mute that or at least turn it way down, you're going to lessen the emotional resonance at the same time that you're able to be informed. So I would keep your volume down pretty much at all times if you can. And then last, it's really tempting for all of us late at night to kind of scroll on our phones or look at our laptops and do that from bed. Don't infect your quote-unquote safe spaces with this information. And that way, when you want to turn off and you want to relax, places like your bedroom is kind of preserved for other activities and not for kind of making these permanent ties and associations to really gruesome and graphic
1: material. The flip side of the fact that these images and the availability of these images can lead to justice and potentially prevent war crimes in the future, the flip side of that is that we're all exposed to it because it's out there. Because it's so public, that's maybe a good thing for justice, but maybe it's a difficult thing for human beings at a personal level. Absolutely. Alexa Koenig is the executive director of the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley School of Law, and she directed the development of the Berkeley Protocol on Digital Open Source Investigations. Alexa, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Coming up, sounding the alarm on impending war. This is On The Media.
0: NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more.